Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Yesterday, Education Minister Stephen Lecce announced they'd be revoking a regulation that favors supply teachers with the most seniority. We'll get reaction from the Ontario Secondary School Teachers Federation. A killer has been identified using new DNA techniques in the 1984 murder of Christine Jessup. James Lockyer, who was the lawyer for Guy Paul Moran, who was originally charged in that case, joins us to talk about that. Hamilton encampments are being removed this week. We'll get an update on that. And last night, we saw two town halls being held instead of the second debate for the U.S. presidential campaign. We'll give you an assessment of that as well. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Yesterday, as you heard on our program, uh, Education Minister Stephen Lecce announced that they would be revoking a regulation that uh, supply teachers uh, have to be hired on a seniority basis. Now, this has been a rather contentious point for uh, quite some time. Uh, Global's Tina Trujetti has the update for us. Clearly, the status quo in this province is not working. And with that, Minister Stephen Lecce has announced the province is tackling a controversial rule which favors supply teachers who've been around the longest when it comes to hiring for new long-term and full-time positions. Regulation 274 is being revoked. Moving forward, teacher hiring in Ontario will now be dictated by merit diversity and the unique needs of schools and communities within our province over seniority. For the last few years, Regulation 274 has given preference to the five qualified teachers who've been on the supply list for the longest amount of time, but he says that's outdated and doesn't ensure students get the best education or representation. Lecce says scrapping this will give equal opportunity to newer and younger educators who've often been bypassed for positions. Tina Trajani, Global News. Well, let's get some reaction. As uh, we carried that story yesterday, as uh, Mr. Lecce was making the announcement, we uh, had anticipated that there was going to be uh, some pushback on that. And to that end, we're uh, pleased to welcome back to the program Harvey Bischoff, who is the president of the Ontario Secondary School Teachers Federation here in the province of Ontario. Harvey, good morning. Thanks for joining us today. My pleasure, Bill. Thanks for having uh, me. Boy, we got a lot to unpack here with Mr. Lecce's announcement and some of the characterizations, I guess, that he used to, to try to justify this. Uh, give me your overall reaction, though, to, to what you heard yesterday. Yeah, well, I mean, my first reaction is, uh, how is this minister, having botched the return to school plan, not spending every waking minute thinking about how to safeguard students and educators and the families they go home to at the end of the day, how is he prioritizing this over safety concerns in our schools? That, to me, is astonishing. Um, but, you know, I, one thing stands out uh, to me from that, uh, from that clip you just played, the status quo isn't working, he claims. W- what is he saying about the quality of the teachers in our schools? Because um, it's outstanding, frankly, and our, our rankings internationally demonstrate that. Um, we're among the best education systems in the world um, as we try to survive the battering that we've taken from this government. Uh, so, I, you know, I, I don't know what possible metric he can point to to make the claim that the status quo isn't working, but it's, it's just uh, not true. Well, that was my initial reaction when, as, as we carried the announcement yesterday, and I was, I was a little flummoxed by this. And I thought, of all the the feedback we've heard about what's gone on since the back to school program was initiated, uh, the quality of teaching has not been one of them. Uh, as a matter of fact, it's one of the things that many parents I've talked to have underscored and said they're doing an outstanding job, especially under very trying circumstances. Uh, which begs the question: Are they trying to solve a problem that doesn't really exist? And, and create a new one, quite honestly. And but you're absolutely right. So it's educators, teachers, and and education workers working in our schools under nord- extremely uh, uh, difficult circumstances are the glue that is holding um, this system together. After. Uh, frankly, after the minister squandered the time that he had between March and September, uh, didn't come up with a coherent plan. Boards scrambled, educators scrambled, um, and they're they're trying to make things work. But, you know, the regulation was brought in for a reason, um, and the reason was that that uh, nepotism in hiring was running rampant uh, in in Ontario, the teacher hiring, and and this was a way of making sure that if you had proven yourself. Um, as a as a teacher, for some period of time, you at least got a crack at an interview, uh, and didn't just see that job go off to you know the principal's niece or nephew, uh, who just freshly got out of out of uh, um, you know the faculty of education. You got a crack at least to present yourself to the people doing the hiring. That's all it ever did. School boards still have had uh, have had full discretion over who gets into the the supply pool they have full discretion out of who moves from there into the group from which long-term and permanent teachers will be hired and it's only then after they've had carte blanche in terms of who gets there which is you know typical that employers have that that power um, it's only then that that 
that seniority played a role in giving you a crack at an interview. So, you know, I mean, they've twisted this all around for their own political purposes, I think, but it doesn't align with any reality. Well, let me ask you about that, because the, the quote in the, the clip we just played there, Harry, uh, says, uh, Mr. Lecce says the move is meant to allow for hiring teachers based on merit and diversity. Uh, is the insinuation there that uh, the teachers that have been hired so far do not fall under that prism? Well, you know, the, the, the merit argument, I mean, they, if, if somebody has been, uh, has been working for a period of time, has proven themselves and is one of the top five who, who gets an interview, and then they choose out of those five, I think you're going to hire people who have merit. You don't even get an interview if you don't have the specific qualifications. Uh, that's the case in secondary, where you have to be um, subject qualified. You know the diversity argument. Um, I support the idea of 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 having a, a you know kind of equity lens on hiring, uh, hiring for diversity, making sure that there is representation amongst uh, amongst the the teaching staff. I think more needs to be done around that. But if school boards haven't hired into their initial pool on the basis of expanding the diversity. That's on them. That's not on the regulation because nothing in the regulation prevents them from from filling that pool with diverse candidates. I'd love to see them do it, but but it's it's again it's it's beside the point when it comes to what the regulation governs. The uh, the tone of of the announcements yesterday seemed to be indicating that this is a problem that was long overdue to be fixed. Uh, uh, based on on what? I mean, have you heard pushback? I mean, you've had discussions and negotiations over the years, Harvey, with boards of education and and and, and obviously with ministry officials as well. Uh, is is this supposedly a contentious point? Because I know in the discussions I've had with boards, and Lord knows we've had a lot to talk about over the last number of months because of what's going on. Uh, this issue has never come up about hiring practices or about no, nobody has yet to tell me that their hands are tied and they're not able to hire the people that they want. Well, I've heard that claim. I've heard school boards make that claim. And yet when a, when a really extensive study was done um, by uh, Ruth Bauman, Charles Ungerleiter, uh, an academic in the, in the field of education, um, they found, first of all, that, that when asked, uh, employers couldn't define what they meant. But the, the employers claimed we can't hire the best teacher. And then we asked, okay, can you define the best teacher? And, and they couldn't. And they were asked, what diversity policies does this regulation interfere with? And they couldn't point to any diversity policies that it interfered with. So I understand that management doesn't like to have its discretion fettered in any way, and therefore they pushed back on this, but they couldn't point to any real problems that arose out of it. That said, there were a couple of unintended consequences uh, that that were inherent in this regulation. Um, one was it limited the mobility of, of a teacher who had you know worked for some period of time and then moved to a different jurisdiction uh, for whatever reason, um, and they dropped all the way down to the bottom of the seniority pool, and that kind of that kind of impediment to to mobility it was probably not productive. And over the years, we tried several times to address it with the school boards association to try to negotiate something that uh, that uh, could address some of those issues. Their only interest was in a complete elimination of of the provisions of the regulation, and so we you know we couldn't go there, and it remained as a regulation, and therefore in the sole uh, jurisdiction of government to change. The the one complaint I have heard over the years, and I'm sure you have, and, and tried to deal with this too, is uh, that that very concern about people that are relatively new into the system, maybe recently graduated, whatever, uh, finding it very very difficult to find employment, uh, which is not an unusual circumstance. That's been going on, I think, for years and years. Uh, but but there, the, again, is that on the boards or is that on on, on the on the regulations? In in fact, in, in, to some extent, that's on neither. That's that's on um, it's on the demographics. We had shrinking enrollment uh, going back for over ten years. There were fewer uh, teacher jobs available, and therefore there were a lot of unemployed uh, or underemployed teachers out there. It was a horrible circumstance. And, you know, I mean, I saw people with years of seniority being being laid off because the student population fell in a particular school board. Um, and it's awful for those for those people. Um, but that's you know, that was not a product of of the regulation. That was a product of a, of a lack of jobs being available because there were just fewer uh, students uh, in the system. And that led to, a, you know, quite a quite a bit of precarity for people looking for work. Absolutely. Is this regulation that we're talking about, Regulation 274, that uh, Mr. Lecce seemed to be targeting here, uh, is this part of the collective agreement? It's not part of our collective agreement. Okay. Um, it, it's different between the different uh, education unions. Um, 
So it exists within the collective agreement, for example, for uh, with my, my Catholic teacher colleagues. Uh, it wasn't part of ours. Um, it, for us, it existed, as I said, just, just in the regulation, and therefore it's, it's changeable by, uh, by the cabinet. So what, what's the result of this? This is going to go into effect, we're told, at the end of this month. Yeah, so I mean, my fear is that the that the outcome is uh, that nepotism comes roaring back to life. That qualified teachers um, don't uh, don't even get access uh, to an interview. Um, that um, that the biases that hire that people doing the hiring might hold um, will have an effect on the on the uh, on the hiring, and there will in fact be less diversity that arises out of this, and and not more. Um, and that would that would absolutely. Uh, concern me. Um, and so, you know, I mean, like I said, there was a reason this regulation was put in place. And if we go back to the practices that were in place before the regulation, that's not going to do us any good. I know that we've had discussions in the past uh, with yourself and with other representatives, uh, Mr. Manners and others, about this and, and, and about the, you know, the, the circle of life, I guess. You know, all the people retiring out of the business and younger uh, folks coming in to fill some of those those positions. Uh, but one of the things I found that was a bit of a logjam, and, and again, I don't think this is on this regulation, uh, was oftentimes teachers would retire and they get hired back under contract by those boards of education instead of hiring somebody uh, new to fill that position. Uh, and again, that's 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 nothing to do with this regulation. That's a board decision, isn't it? To, as to what and they've done that with principals too in many situations, uh, and that seems to to basically you know set up a barrier for people that want to get into this profession. Yeah, so it's very interesting that at 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 the same time as the minister claims that the regulation is meant to open up the possibility for uh, for newer teachers to get quicker access to work, at the very same time he's doing that, he's asking us to to suspend uh, what's referred to as the 50-day rule, which if you are uh, a teacher on pension, you've retired, you're collecting pension, you're limited to being able to do supply work to, to 50 days in a year, after which you, you if you work beyond that 50 days, you no longer continue to be in receipt of your pension, you start contributing to the pension again. So he wants us to eliminate that rule, in other words, create uh, much more ability for people to collect pension while also teaching, and yet he claims he wants to open up uh, access for younger teachers. Like, it, it, it just it, it makes no sense. It's completely contradictory. Well, it, it does, though, point to the idea that we've just talked about here, that the, 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 the logjam seems to be at the upper end, not at the, at the entry level here. Uh, and again, that's, that's something that he didn't address at all. No, no, and, and even that, I mean, in, in large part, that logjam is, is, is being dismantled by the fact that enrollment's going back up, um, there is hiring taking place again, we're seeing far fewer uh, layoffs uh, around the province, um, so it's one of, you know, that's a cyclical, cyclical demographic thing, it's really unfortunate for those who get caught uh, at the bottom end of the curve, um, but it's in the process of correcting itself right now. So going forward now, as you mentioned, this is not part of the collective agreement uh, with the OSSTF anyway. Uh, is this an issue that's going to be discussed? I mean, at some point, uh, you know, contracts are going to have to be discussed again. That was a, To su- suggest that was a contentious issue over the last couple of months, I think would be a massive understatement here. Uh, is this throwing gasoline under the fire? Um, you know, I mean, I, I've not seen this, this government has done nothing but sow discord within the education system. And here's another disruptive in, influence. Um, you know, this is the same government that decided to in, implement a new math curriculum in the midst of a pandemic, for heaven's sake. Um, they have no idea how to stabilize the system. This will not help to do that. Um, I, you know, what I, I can't predict at this point, um, how exactly it might find itself uh, working into the next round of contract negotiations. But, you know, what they have promised is a consultation process as school boards come up, each with their own uh, hiring practices uh, uh, procedure. Um, and if that consultation is as thorough um, and uh, as the consultation around school reopening, by which I mean there was zero, um, it's, you know, it's not going to play out well. Well, the timing on this is rather interesting as well. Uh, talking to somebody I know in the teaching profession uh, about this yesterday after the program, and uh, he, he qualified this as, he said, this is the art of deflection. He says, you know, they're taking a lot of heat for the rollout program, and it's not going well. Uh, and he says, look over here, and, and you know, it's, as opposed to dealing with the problems that are at hand here. Is there any merit to that? 
it, it's, it was absolutely my first reaction um, and what I was uh, you know, saying to the uh, media folks I spoke with yesterday um, that, you know, as, as I mentioned off the top, the first thing is it's astonishing to me that he's not spending every waking minute thinking about, about safety. And so why would he do this? Well, the only reason in my mind would be that, that he knows that, uh, that parents and students and educators know that he absolutely botched this reopening. He absolutely wasted the time that could have been used to put uh, complete and coherent plans in place that would keep... Uh, the education system, uh, the people within it, safe, um, and so now, absolutely, this is a new, a new shiny object that he's trying to trying to use to distract. I mean, when we heard yesterday that there was going to be an announcement uh, in the morning about this, we'd speculated at the radio station they're finally going to come up with some 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 modifications to the program, you know, protective equipment or, or barriers or, or plexiglass or something. They're going to do something about the safety in the classroom. That's what we all anticipated this was going to be. So this kind of kind of got, caught us off guard anyway, and I'm sure caught you off guard. Yeah, absolutely. And, and wouldn't you think that, you know, in the midst of a pandemic, when we have when we have uh, uh, dozens of medical experts, epidemiologists and infectious disease uh, experts saying you need to have smaller classes so that you can maintain social distancing, you need to have an appropriate masking policy, you need standards but against which we can measure the quality of the ventilation in our sometimes, let's face it, aging schools. Um, all of these things, and, and this announcement addressed not one of them. Harvey, we'll stay in touch. Obviously, uh, more to come on this uh, before the end of the month when this goes into effect. I appreciate your time today. Thanks so much. Appreciate the, uh, you giving me the time. Thanks, Bill. Take care. Harvey Bishop, president of the Ontario Secondary School Teachers Federation, uh, with his response to uh, the Education Minister's announcement yesterday. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Uh, yesterday was uh, the day, I guess, for surprise announcements. Uh, the Education Minister and uh, a couple of other things that we're going to pick up on a little bit later on in the show. But also a surprise announcement from uh, police, Toronto Police, about uh, a resolution finally to a, a long-standing murder investigation. Uh, the death of Christine Jessup, of course, that happened back in the 1980s. And uh, in news yesterday, we found out the killer has finally been identified using a new DNA technique. Uh, I want to give some details, and then we're going to talk with somebody who's uh, got uh, extreme interest in this and, and has a long-standing uh, background, of course, in what's going on here. But uh, first of all, Brianna Carnegie brings us up to speed. Paul Moran says he is relieved for Christine Jessup's family and hopes this will give them some peace of mind, noting it's been a dreadful ordeal for 36 years. He calls her murder a terrible and tragic event. Moran learned the nine-year-old's killer had been identified through two members of the Toronto Police Service who visited his house Thursday morning. He says he's grateful police stayed on the case and have now finally solved it, adding when DNA exonerated him in 1995, he was sure that one day DNA would reveal the real killer, and now it has. Brianna Carnegie, Global News. Uh, Guy Paul Moran, of course, played a key role in this, uh, and uh, we want to bring uh, James Lockyer into the conversation. Uh, Mr. Lockyer was uh, the attorney uh, that represented Guy Paul Moran uh, for this rather horrific, uh, nightmarish uh, 24 years that he's gone through. Uh, Mr. Lockyer, thank you so much for the time. Glad you could join us today. Yes, glad to be here. Uh, your uh, reaction, uh, we heard Mr. Moran, of course, uh, finally spoke to the media about this yesterday. Uh, when uh, when you found out that there was going to be a resolution to this, what was your reaction? Uh, one of great relief, uh, uh, tempered with um, uh, sadness, uh, thinking about Christine again and thinking about how this happened at the hands of this man um, who's now been identified, Mr. Hoover, as, the, as her killer. And, and sadness for the family too, of course. And, and, and Guy Paul had same reaction as me. We spoke and we talked about, you know, we had the same 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 thoughts. Uh, going back to those days, and I, I remember the case vividly. It's something that touched the hearts of, I think, just about everybody uh, at the time. Uh, but with with Guy's, Guy Paul's arrest and and, and the, the trial, etc., and, and conviction, we need to remember. I know he was exonerated eventually, but but. Explain to us what was going on there and what was going through his head. He was a neighbor in, in, the, in the area, of course, of the Jessup household, and uh, it, it seemed in pretty quick order that the police pretty much focused in on him. Uh, they most certainly did. Uh, and, of course, once you focus on, once they focused on him, they uh, didn't focus on anybody else. When uh, it now seems that this chap uh, was uh, someone that should have been looked into uh, 
uh, straight away because uh, he was one of the very few people we now hear from the Jessops uh, who would have known that uh, uh, that uh, Christine was going to be alone that day when she got home from school. Um, you know, for Guy Paul, of course, uh, it was a, a nightmare, but a very strange one. Uh, uh, I remember the story uh, when a, a, spe- a, a spectator walked into the courtroom during his trial one day. I, I didn't do his trial, but I heard the story afterwards and uh, sat down next to Guy Paul without knowing who he was and asked him what was going on. And he t- described where the judge sat and where the jury sat and where the crown was and the defense counsel. And then he uh, he said to this uh, spectator, he said, to, and I play the accused. And and that put it so well that it, it, he was, of course, facing an experience which was completely out of, an out-of-mind experience for him. He was being accused of something he knew absolutely nothing about uh, and indeed was convicted of something he knew absolutely nothing about. Um, what a very peculiar thing to happen well, to, but, uh, to him. But there was, and, and for people to say, well, why, why does, is this great relief uh, I'm, I'm lifted off his shoulders now? Because even after he was exonerated, there were still those who were saying, yeah, well, he got off on a technicality. Probably he was still the guy. So this, that, that doesn't go away. That stays with you, doesn't it, when you've been in, through the, the, the ordeal that he went through? Well, it, it does, even though the DNA that we, we found in 1995 which has now identified the actual perpetrator, uh, positively excluded uh, Guy Paul as the person who had left uh, the uh, the semen deposit on, on Christine's uh, clothing. And in fact, we had a public inquiry at the end of the 90s, and, and some of the original police officers and uh, some of the Crown attorneys uh, continued to express their doubts as to Guy Paul's innocence in the face of of the DNA results, and 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 that just shows you how the, the you know people who are supposed to be professionals can just get lost in their own uh, certainties uh, of, of of facts that are on their face absurd. Uh, Paul and I remember it well. We were talking about it yesterday. Uh, uh, how some of these people reacted. Uh, I wonder what they're saying now. Maybe they're saying that they have a. a, a a theory in the U.S. in these types of cases that uh, if you uh, identify the person whose DNA it is, then you just add in the wrongly convicted person and say, well, they must have done it together. Well, and there was a concern about that as well. And like I say, I, I can still remember the speculation even after uh, he was released. And, and uh, it's, 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 it's got to be an incredible relief for him now to finally know that there's some closure to it. it it's not a happy ending. It's, it, it really brings back the horrific details of what happened of to, to Cor Christine. But, but at least, it, I guess, Guy Paul can put his head down on the pillow last night and say, look, at I, this is finally behind me. And, and, you know, the Jessers can put their heads down yeah. and say at least we've there's some crumb of comfort for them that at least they now know who did it. I mean, not knowing must have been awful for those 36 years since Christine uh, disappeared and then her body was found two or three months later. So, you know, I, I think uh, it was good for, for everyone, for, for them and for us, uh, members of the public as well. In hindsight, though, I mean, this was a neighbor as well and somebody that was known to the family and who knew Christine and she knew him. How extensive was the investigation into this before they finally arrested Guy Paul? Uh, well, it really wasn't very good. I mean, when, when you say uh, uh, Mr. Hoover was a neighbor, I think that just means he lived in the community. It doesn't mean yeah. he lived next door. No. Uh, Guy Paul actually lived next door. He really was a neighbor. Um, and, and Or the neighbor, if you will. Um, uh, you know, th- there was a whole public inquiry into the investigation. It was clearly inadequate. It was clearly badly done. Um, there were always uh, divisions between two different police forces investigating it. The York Regional Force and the the, uh, uh, the Whitby Force uh, uh, were uh, sort of fighting each other over the case as well. Um, that's all docu- well documented at the uh, public inquiry that was held. Uh, and then, but myself, I, I tend to blame the police less and the prosecutors more. The prosecutors should have known better. They used evidence that they knew in their heart of hearts was highly suspect, if not completely unbelievable. And yet they maintained uh, their prosecution uh, with all systems on go ahead uh, against Guy Paul. And, and uh, to me, that was that was really uh, where uh, where we should aim our our, uh, our uh, anger, if you will, 
at what went wrong for Guy Paul here and what went wrong for Christine Jessup and her family. Remember, if you prosecute the wrong person, you're not prosecuting the right person. And uh, we've had a number of cases at Innocence Canada where uh, by taking up the cause of a wrongly convicted person, we've eventually managed to establish who really did commit the crime. This isn't the first time this has happened for us. That uh, competitive spirit between police forces is not uh, unusual back in those days. Uh, the, the Paul Bernardo investigation, of course, uh, was was troubled by the same sort of thing, where uh, you know two police forces not sharing information, and and uh, and obviously almost you know blew that case. And well, we can talk about that, but uh, I, I think that's one of the takeaways. I, I've talked to a number of people in law enforcement since that, and since Guy Paul's case, and certainly that one. Uh, and there's a sense of cooperation and sharing of information that pre- probably didn't exist back in those days. Oh, I, I think you're quite right. I think you're absolutely right. Um, which, uh, and I, as I say, I tend to focus more on the uh, the prosecution side of of, of Guy Paul's case. Uh, it was uh, it really was an outrageous prosecution, and they should have known that. So, is is the case closed on this now? The family knows, and 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 again, they've gone through uh, this hell too. And you know, when when Guy Paul was exonerated, of course, of uh, still saying, okay, that's fine. But who is it then? And and now they finally got an answer, uh, due to some incredible technology, I guess, that was used uh, to to try to identify Mr. Hoover. Yes, I mean, what they had is they had the uh, profile, uh, the, the DNA profile of the killer since. Uh, 1995, and it's just taken 25 years to put the person to that uh, DNA profile. No, I don't think the job is over, and I think that was clear. The Toronto Police don't think it's over from the press conference yesterday. Um, it, it, the who done it is over. We know who did it, uh, but now we need to know more about that person. We need to know more about what investigation there was of him back then. We need to know who whom he may have told that he did it and who may have kept kept his secrets and we need to know what other crimes he may have committed both before and after christine's murder christine's murder was such a vicious and and it would seem now a planned uh, event a planned killing a planned rape and murder uh that uh it's it's hard to believe that this man didn't commit other crimes other sexual assaults, other murders, who knows? And I'm sure that's uh, one of the things the Toronto Police are now uh, working on very hard. More to come on this one, to be sure. Uh, Mr. Lockyer, as always, thank you. I appreciate your time so much today. It's nice to talk to you. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. James Lockyer, who, of course, is the uh, the lawyer for Guy Paul Moran, who was uh, wrongfully accused and, and at one point even convicted in the death of uh, Christine Jessup. And uh, as uh, Mr. Lockyer says, uh, the investigation, as far as police is concerned, is really just getting underway now that they've made an identification of the uh, the murderer. Uh, there's much more to come, I'm sure, about what's going to be happening there. This is the Bill Keller Show, 980 CFPL and 900 CHML. Uh, one of the other stories we're following today, of course, is uh, the uh, the tent encampments that have been set up to different spots. And uh, focus on the ones they hear in Hamilton over the last couple of days because they're being uh, disbanded now. Uh, we're told it's being done in an orderly fashion. Uh, Paul Johnson from the city explained it this way to us a couple of days ago. This is a week of uh, tremendous effort, I know, from our outreach teams and uh, and our social navigator teams and our shelter partners uh, who are operating the shelter spaces and hotels. And by all accounts, so we are getting some people into those spaces, which is great news, and that will be accelerating through this week and into next. Well, that's ongoing right now. It started uh, yesterday and will continue today. Uh, we've also had many discussions, of course, with uh, Wade Pazianka, who's a partner in Rossa McBride, uh, co-counsel for HamSmart in Keeping Six, uh, along with a, a number of other folks that have been advocating for the, the people that are involved in this. Uh, Wade is actually at the uh, Ferguson Avenue encampment right now, and he joins us on the Bill Keller Show. Uh, Wade, thank you so much for the time. Glad you could be with us today. Yeah, thanks for having me, Bill, and I hope you can hear me okay. We can. Everything seems to be fine. What do you see? What do you hear as, you, as you're down there today? Yeah, so tents are, uh, so, so the, a, a lot of um, space here has been cleared out. There's a, a police presence. It's, from my perspective, relatively minimal. Um, and like yesterday, uh, I think the police are largely hanging back and, and playing a cooperative role. Um, you know, the city staff were, were out here yesterday. They're out here today. Um, I was here until probably about 7 o'clock last night, and, and there were, there were um, city staff on the ground checking to make sure people had places to go. So I would say there's probably about 20 tents left here as of last night, and some of those are, are clearing out now. There are not enough totes and uh, suitcases and things to move things out for 
some of the residents in the encampments. I just did a, a run over to Canadian Tire to buy some some more totes to to try to make sure people had the, the capacity to move their their belongings. Um, so so far, it's been peaceful. There was some communication last night that this morning would be a little bit more. I, I heard the word forceful used, but so far. Um, you know, I haven't seen any of that. Uh, it, that is there any yet. resistance to what's going on, Wade? There, there's, I would say for the most part, no. Um, there are uh, one or two residents who, who, uh, you know, for, for various reasons, likely related to mental health, are, are resistant to, to leaving. But so far, the police have, um, you know, interacted. And, and when there were some people supporting that individual, the police backed away. At this point, and so you know that remains to be seen. What's going to happen a little later in the day here? Um, yeah, but, that's why I brought it up. I know when you and I talked about this earlier this week, before this whole process had started, uh, we were concerned about you know what what kind of support services are going to be there. I mean, obviously, police are going to be overseeing this whole thing, but uh, but is is there assistance for people like that? Uh, for people that may have uh, mental concerns and, and and psychological concerns about this, and 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 a number of other things. Let's, let's face it. This is a as we've articulated a thing right from the beginning, and you've certainly represented them in this regard. This is this is a public health issue as much as and a social services issue as well. Are, are there people there that can lend that kind of assistance? Yeah, I mean, I, listen. I think I think the police have have largely been reasonable so far. I I mean, other professionals have been called in. So I know there's a, a social worker from Sasha on the way now to to try to assist one individual. So, you know, I whether or not the police have the capability to deal with with those kind of high acuity individuals, I would say probably not from my perspective. But they are kind of taking a more passive approach and and letting others uh, step in where appropriate. So you know, it doesn't mean that what's happened today, Bill, is going to be the way that, that it goes for the rest of the day. But so far, um, it's been reasonable. There's some issues. Uh, you know, I'm going to go ask a, a sergeant right now if we can have one of the, the police cruisers turn its lights off. You know, when someone's in distress and, and not doing well from a mental health perspective, having a police cruiser kind of near their site with lights going um, is something that's, you know, provocative and can can escalate the situation. So just some small things like that, but I haven't asked yet. I'm going to do that shortly, and, and I hope that will, you know, we can... Yeah, because this kind of dovetails into the conversations we've had in the past about uh, police being placed into this situation of, of basically being social workers or mental health officials, and uh, and there many of them are uncomfortable in that position as well and, and are going to be looking for support like this. And I, I just want to ensure that the city is actually providing that for them. Yeah, I... This is really kind of uh, an, an eye-opener for me, Bill, what happened yesterday and what's happening today, kind of on the ground. I would say that the city staff, um, you know, there's excellent resources there, and they, they seem to genuinely care, and they're doing what they can. And so, you know, I've been critical of, of the city, um, you know, as you know, and, and last time I was on your show, I was fairly critical. But I would say that, you know, the staff are, are a different story, and they're here doing the absolute best that they can do. Um, and so, you know, my criticism of the city, I think, largely rests with a group of councillors. This is not the end of this, though. I mean, the, 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 you know, they're being placed in, in different places, but this is this is a short-term fix. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it is a short-term fix. And I mean, of course, people who, you know, have high acuity, as the city defines it under the test, um, will be able to go to other areas as per the protocol that was agreed to. Um, so, you know, I think it's just a matter of telling people, look, if you have to leave here, you have options, and doing it in the way, doing it in a way that causes the the least trauma. And uh, you know, the, the the city staff, the the staff who were doing garbage removal yesterday, they had one of the encampment uh, residents helping to to remove um, belongings and put it into the garbage trucks. And then I saw a supervisor come up to that encampment resident at the end of the day and, and give him some money for his help. Right. So you know that teamwork and kind of doing this in a way that doesn't cause further trauma that's been um that's a good thing from my perspective and i was kind of pleased with what i saw good to see and uh, and good to hear uh wade thanks as always for this and uh for uh, bringing us up to speed on what's happening here as i say it's going to be a busy day we should mention by the way too uh just for those who are listening and maybe driving around in the cars the first avenue i guess is close to traffic now isn't it until they get this all fixed up yeah it is close to traffic so they have an officer at each end of the street um, they, they are letting people down who are bringing totes and stuff like that. So really, the, the road's being used to, to help uh, assist in um, you know, dismantling this encampment here on Ferguson. And then I think very shortly, they're going to they're gonna head over to First Ontario. Bill, I don't know if you, if you saw this. It was one other thing I wanted to mention. Back sure. in, um, uh, I think it was on October 14th, so a couple of days ago, the city released the statistics. Did you have a chance to, to catch that? Which ones are those? 
So it, it, they did the press release where they said, you know, the, the increased calls for paramedics, for police calls, for service mm. uh, to First Ontario and Ferguson. Um, so there's a press release the city the city uh, released, and those numbers are, are found online and they're accessible to anyone who wants to take a look. But I just wanted to make one comment about that. Yeah. If you look at the date, so the city puts out timeframes and they're saying, you know, the number of dollars or the percentage increase compared to previous years. Some of these are from April to August. Some of them are from July 1st to August. I just wanted to comment for anyone who's taken a look at that, that from my perspective, this is the city kind of looking at the time periods that show the greatest increase in numbers to, to make the situation look worse than it is in terms of paramedic calls and police calls. And Bill, it's just something that I wanted to mention because I see this as just another facet of, of you know, that group of counsellors trying to make the situation more dire than it is rather than focusing on, like their staff are doing out here today at Ferguson, rather than focusing on helping the situation and making it better. Uh, sounds like a topic for conversation next week. Uh, okay, leave your phone on, Wade. I will. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> thanks so much, and thanks for the update today. Wade Pazianka, of course, uh, from Rossum Bride, uh, overseeing uh, the hopefully peaceful and uh, orderly uh, transition of the uh, tent encampment, at least the one on Ferguson anyway. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Dueling town halls last night. Uh, the two town halls being held, one for Joe Biden, one for Donald Trump. That was supposed to actually be a debate last night, but of course uh, Trump backed out of it when he found out it was going to be a virtual debate. Uh, and uh, so Mr. Biden had uh, then scheduled a town hall, and at the last minute NBC and uh, Donald Trump came up with a, a bit of a, a deal to get their one hour of prime time too. Mike Grassi has got the details on this. It was an unconventional night in presidential politics. I'm president. I have to see people. The words of a president matter. President Donald Trump and Democratic challenger Joe Biden were at separate nationally broadcast town halls simultaneously. The president was in Miami on NBC. I've done a great job. We had the strongest economy in the world. We closed it up. We are coming around the corner. The vaccines are coming out soon. Biden was in Philadelphia on ABC. In politics, grudges don't work. They're not, they make no sense. I really mean it. The dueling town halls came about after Trump contracted COVID-19 and balked at a change to a virtual format for the debate that was scheduled Thursday night. Mike Gracia, Washington. So how did they fare? I mean, this is an opportunity on prime time for them to, to make a name for themselves with uh, less than two weeks, well, I guess about two and a half weeks now, uh, till uh, the election coming up on November the 3rd. I want to bring Laura Babcock, uh, president of Power Group Communications, in on the, uh, the conversation. Laura, good morning. Thanks for joining us today. Good morning, Bill. All right, so how do you handle last night? I mean, you've got one on the laptop, one on the TV, a split screen. I mean, you, it, it's, you can't keep going back and forth on this, but there were two very, very different evenings. They were, and what I did personally was I would, I would watch for a bit, and then when I found that Biden, as he often did, went on quite at length answering a question from the audience, then I would flip over to Trump because Trump you know, gets through a lot more a lot faster. But in doing that, and then, of course, looking at all the coverage this morning, you couldn't help but notice the juxtaposition in their styles and their temperaments, even more so than when we watched them on that stage together a couple of weeks ago when people felt very clearly that Biden had done better in that debate because Trump was, you know, sort of arguing with Mike Wallace and arguing with uh, with Joe Biden and, and constantly interrupting. And, and Joe Biden said that famous line, you know, would you just shut up, man? Uh, there. Even last night, you saw more of a juxtaposition between the two. It was almost as though, and this is what people are calling it because one of Trump's um, campaign people put this out there, but it was as though you're watching Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood with Joe Biden. Uh, it was very low-key, you know, very soothing. Uh, it went through a lot of stuff, and then you would flip over, and it was as though you're watching sort of Archie Bunker at the height of his anger and frustration if you if you had to look for two characters and it was it was very difficult and i think a lot of americans opted by the early numbers that are coming out now bill both youtube numbers and some early assessments the tv viewing a lot more people opted to watch biden uh, because you know there was a lot of there was a lot of drama watching Guthrie, Guthrie rather, and Trump. Uh, there was some news made there, but it was a very, very tense, aggressive exchange for most of the time. Uh, and I think that Americans are getting very fatigued by that level of aggression. And and there was a whole lot of misinformation going on, of course, with the Trump uh, interview. And it was very hard for people to watch. So I think the ratings will show that very much Biden won the night. Well, I want to play one of those intense moments uh, from the debate, and uh, we'll talk about uh, Savannah Guthrie, who was the the moderator, well, the, the the inquisitor, as it were, in the Trump session. But this is one of the more poignant moments from last night. 
good with masks. I'm okay with masks. I tell people wear masks. But just the other day, they came out with a statement that 85% of the people that wear masks catch it. Well, so, you know, they this didn't is say a that. Very I know that study. Well, that's, 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 a- that's what I heard, and that's what I saw. Uh, by the way, I've, I've seen some of the feedback this morning, too, Lauren, social media, and mm-hmm. uh, a lot of people, I, I, I suppose Trump supporters, are saying that uh, Savannah Guthrie uh, beat up on him, was picking on him, was in, trying to intimidate him. Uh, I thought she did an outstanding job of, of keeping him on message, or at least trying to get him to answer the questions. Well, the questions were not so-called gotcha questions that, you know, Sarah Palin made famous when she was asked what book she's read lately, and she didn't have a good answer for that years ago. These were simple questions, like, when was the last time you were tested negative prior to contracting COVID? Uh, do you denounce QAnon, the conspiracy theory about cannibalism and pedophile rings, where you're the savior of it? You know, She was asking him questions that were pretty basic, uh, and his, his uh, evasiveness and to a point of, of really foolishness, you know, there was a point where she kept saying to him, but you do know, like, I just I just described it to you. And he's like, well, I don't have to, you know, take your word as as fact. And she goes, yeah, but but you do know, like, we know you know this. Why can't you just denounce it? You know, and then he went off supporting the fact that they're against pedophilia. And she said, yeah, but do you really believe there's a Democratic ring out there, some kind of cabal that, that you know, is cannibals and stuff. And, and he, he just wouldn't. And so she was, she, and she was just kind of sitting across from him. And at one point, I think most famously out of it, she said, you know, you can't just retweet these things. You're not some crazy uncle. You know, you're the president of the United States with tremendous power. And so he looked to be, uh, I can see why, you know, some people on the right, his supporters would say, why was she so tough? Because she didn't just move on after the, the first or second time he would say he didn't know about something. But, but we all know that he does know. And so what she was just trying to do, I think, was break through some of the gaslighting that this campaign has used since 2016 uh, by, by actually trying to just kind of say, no, no, we can see this, you know, we're, we're, we're looking at it. And I think for a lot of people that was a very powerful use of a journalist doing that kind of debate. He could have done more easily a debate where they were on Zoom originally, him and Biden, which was the plan, but he didn't want to do that because he didn't want his microphone cut off on Zoom. So he put himself in this situation, Samantha is a journalist, uh, and she handled it like a journalist. And I think that was refreshing for people who were able to watch through in that debate. But it was not good for Trump, especially around something as ridiculous as this QAnon conspiracy. And, and by the way, to that point, and I thought uh, Stephanopoulos did a pretty good job of trying to keep Biden on message, too. As, as, as miss, Biden can, can ramble on sometimes. And, and, and you know, obviously, the, the, he said, well, let's get back to this and would interrupt him to do that. But that's the difference between being a moderator in a debate and 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 a Q and A such as as what Trump actually wanted to have last night, is you give that person, in this case Savannah Guthrie, the license to be able to say, wait, that's not what I asked you. No, I want you to answer this question. You can go back at them uh, because it's one on one, and you better be ready for that. And Trump did not appear ready. You're right, Bellar. He had the same pat answers he's always had. Well, I don't know those people. Yes, you do. You know who the Proud Boys are. You know who Q and On is. Don't give me that. But that's what he'll say publicly when he doesn't want to make a comment on it and she she wouldn't let him get away with that no she wouldn't and so the the format failed him in a couple of ways i mean he had he had set it up with nbc uh, to, uh which was very controversial as as you know from following sort of the inside baseball media stuff uh he set it up you know it was a it was a network that's been friendly to him over the years of course and so he had supporters behind him slightly faded, um, you know, in terms of the focus, but you could see them agreeing with everything he was saying. And yeah, Who's I mean, that lady was, in the back that kept nodding her head? It looked like a bobblehead behind him well, on everything he said. Who, she was actually someone who ran a campaign, or she was like a pro-Trump activist or supporter candidate, whatever. She was involved with the team, right? So, oh, okay. so they had set it up, staged it, as you would expect Trump to, to have people in the background looking as everything he was saying was gospel. And, and so he had set it up, I think, to think that he looked very favorable. He was leaning off of the chair, looking very aggressive and ready to fight. You know, certainly not someone who looks like they've just come through COVID. He looked like, you know, what he would think would be a good look. But the problem was, is that he didn't get to just do the stagecraft and just do his usual thing because Samantha, to your point, had the airtime to keep going back at him and back at him. And there was one point where he even said to her, oh, that's cute, 
or you're being cute. And, and you know, as a woman watching that, uh, you can't help think about Trump pleading for, pleading for suburban housewives to just like him the other day. And here he is trying to minimize her and, and be a misogynist with her. And so all the, all the crying this morning that she was somehow too tough on him, he let himself into that format. He created that environment, and he was not prepared to handle it. Uh, on some key questions, and as you say, these these were not gotcha questions. These were questions that he he had to know were coming about COVID and about the pandemic, about vaccines, uh, about his association with the far right, and uh, and he just didn't seem to to be prepared to, to answer. Even if he'd you know given pat answers that somebody had written for him, he didn't want to go there because that's not his style. Uh, to the other one for a second, though, I wanted to get your comment about the the Biden Stephanopoulos hour and a half that was there. Uh, I thought one of the more poignant moments in that debate was uh, when Stephanopoulos asked him, if you lose on November the 3rd, what does that tell you? And and that really it gave him pause. And the answer I thought was, was pretty enlightening. It was. And so, I mean, here's a guy who has um, more in the war chest what, 15 days out from election, 16 days out from election than in U.S. history. I think he's broken all records. He's got something like almost a half of hundreds of millions of dollars still ready to spend, right? So he can he can TV campaign his way right through to the finish line. So Joe Biden is in a very good position, both financially and in terms of the larger coalition that he's building, a lot of you know former Republicans coming on board. He's got a whole lot going for him, including poll numbers, which I'm always skeptical of, but it, he's, he's in a really good place. And so you would expect a question like that to come back with some sort of sense of, well, you know, it's unlikely that I'm going to lose given the polls and blah, 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 but get out and vote. But that's not what Joe Biden is. That's not who he is. And his answer was almost painful in terms of the pregnant pause. You're wondering, "Uh uh-oh, did he lose his threat? But what he actually said was, you know what, it might say that I'm a crappy candidate. Um, you know, but but I, I hope people know that I'm going to be there for them. This, the, the country needs hope and healing. And, and even if you don't vote for me, I'm still going to be your president. You know, so it was a very... But part humble... B to the answer, though, you're right. You know, I hope yep, they're lousy candidate. But he said, I also hope it doesn't mean that, that America is the racist, bigoted, uh, you know, uh, uncaring country that Donald Trump paints it out to be or makes it. And I thought that's, you know, to, to, to be able to throw that into the end of the... I thought really gave some substance to the whole thing. In other words, you know, again, making it, this is about, you know, quelling the, the furor that Trump has caused. And, and he was able to incorporate that into the answer, I thought, quite effectively. It was, but some of his other answers weren't as effective. No, you know, I'm not, not. I'm not giving Biden full marks for last night because he did ramble on and he, he appeared at some point almost too needy, too earnest. When a young black man asked a question and he answered it and then he went on and asked the man, did I sort of satisfy you? And the man was not convinced. You saw Biden try again and keep going. And then uh, you saw the body language of, again, the guy wasn't totally convinced. And Biden looked kind of frustrated. I mean, he, he was almost needing to please so much. So on the one hand, it was wonderful that the shots showed him staying after 90 minutes, still talking to people in the audience. But he was very, very intent on, on really convincing everyone on every answer. And so it got to, at some points, it got to a little bit of, you know, focus yourself, Joe. <laughs> you know, a lot of good substance here, but you're going to lose your audience, which which is also still important. So I think he got a lot more viewers. Hopefully he did well. But on a, on a couple of points, you could almost feel his campaign going, okay, Joe, he's not, you know, let him think about it. <laughs> you know, let, let, get to the next question. Let's cover as much ground to open up our audience and open up appeals for you as broadly as we can. Next debate is scheduled for next week. Uh, it, it, this was the kind of the pregame show. They each had their their platform for a period on prime time, uh, but it's uh, head to head next week. Uh, if in fact it goes forward, and there's even some speculation about that now because of uh, of Trump's medical condition. I know his his personal doctor who is, is not an infectious disease specialist by any stretch of the imagination, says that he's not infectious. Uh, others suggest that, yeah, he probably still is. Uh, does, does next week happen? Well, I think there's a number of different factors going on. I mean, we just heard yesterday that Kamala Harris's team has COVID, a number of them. Now, she's obviously not part of the presidential debate, but that is very close to the Biden campaign circle. And so I think as any day in COVID, especially with the U.S. cases lighting up, uh, you know, they're they're in a really bad time as a country right now with their caseload. It'll be interesting to see whether or not there's even going to be the willingness to stage any kind of an event bringing a bunch of different people together. So I think we kind of hold off on that. In terms of strategy, uh, the White House campaign would be probably smart not to expose Trump 
to another series of challenges on questions based on his last two performances. But knowing his personality, I can't imagine that he won't in some way want to get those airwaves. So I think there'll be some sort of a spectacle next week, uh, probably nothing like what we're accustomed to. And, uh, you know, we're just going to have to wait and see. But I think safety is going to rule the day, certainly in terms of the Biden campaign's considerations. They've always said they'll do any debates, but they're going to make sure that they're done safely. So whether or not that will be the same set of rules that the Trump campaign wants to follow, we'll have to wait and see. I, I share your skepticism with polling, by the way, but uh, the fact that I think there is a consensus that Biden is ahead uh, by how much I think is is, is debatable at this stage. Uh, but the Trump people we're hearing, uh, Brian Kerman from the CNN analyst, of course, on the show yesterday, uh, suggesting that the word he's hearing at the White House and from other members of the White House press corps is that uh, the staff have, have all but thrown up their hands and said, we can't control this guy. We can't get him on message, meaning Trump. Uh, so what the, what's the advice in a situation like that? Just throw him out there and, and let him be Trump and think that's going to carry the day? Well, and that's why I bifurcated the sort of strategy for next week. You know, his, his team doesn't want him doing it again, but he, in fact, uh, they can't stop him. You know, and uh, and he seems to feel particularly fired up, and he's the kind of person that's going to fight it right to the end. So their best thing that they can do is work the ground map on the Electoral College advantage like they did last time. They don't seem to have the electoral vote at all. It seems as though Biden's got a much bigger lead, not just than Hillary Clinton in terms of popularity of the party, but he also has personal approval ratings that are way higher than Hillary's, which is which is a major factor in, in a presidential election. So he's a different candidate than she was and has better numbers and more money. So, yes, I agree that I, I think he's got the absolute advantage. But it's about those swing states. It's about those few states in the Electoral College, Florida and a number of those Midwestern states, Wisconsin, et cetera, that make the difference. Another factor, though, is that those states right now are being hit terribly by COVID. And Trump is still flying in doing these potential super spreader events in those states. So, uh, you know, there's a lot to watch, but I, I just caution people, let's watch the Electoral College. It made a massive difference in 2016. And, you know, and we see long lineups of Democrats voting as though their lives depend on it. And I think that they do at this stage with this pandemic. But the fact is that, you know, we have to keep remembering it's not just the popular vote in the U.S. and it's not just about energy and turnout. It's very much about playing that Electoral College. And Trump's campaign has shown they have the ability to do that very well. Laura Babcock from uh, Power Group. As always, Laura, thanks so much for this today. My pleasure. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.